Hi, and welcome to Bread. We're a newish, open-minded, spirit-filled, non-denominational church who now meet each week in Hollywood Adventist on the corner of Hollywood Boulevard and Van Ness in Los Angeles. In-person church life, as with the rest of life, it's going to take a while to find its shape again post-Covid, and slowly and surely is going to be our mantra for a while. All these podcasts are taken for the time being from our Sunday services, hence the not always perfect audio quality and background noises. You can live stream them or watch the videos later on bread.church if that's more your thing. How to Return is the theme of the current series. We hope it serves you well. Hello and welcome everyone. Uh, Nice to see you all. Hello, balcony people. Hi. Um, You're very welcome to. Uh, Thanks for those who shared about the weekend. That was great to hear. We had a really uh, fun time. We'll do it again. Um, Don't miss out if you missed out uh, next time. Um, So at this time of year, coinciding with big holiday weekends, we are kind of launching our end of year giving drive. Uh, And so this week and next week, I'm going to talk about money. I know it's Thanksgiving next weekend, but if there's any chance that you could be here, please do that. If you're a part of Bread, try and be here next week so that you can feel part of um, the vision for uh, the time going forward and uh, so that you can hear kind of a little bit more teaching about what we think about money and and, uh, what God thinks about it. Uh, But equally, if you are here visiting, if you are just um, checking us out, Please uh, don't feel like this applies to you. Hopefully you'll find it interesting and challenging, uh, but you can let it kind of just wash over you and just sit back in your chair and think, great, that doesn't apply to me. This is just for the home team. But you might want to join the church, and then it does apply to you. Ha <laughs> uh, Good. So, just to start with, I should say I'm quite sensitive about how money has been uh, talked about in church. Um, Firstly, there is some odd theology banded around about uh, money, most notably the sort of prosperity gospel which you may have come across. Uh, In its very basic form, it's God wants you rich. If you give money to the church, he will give you back even more money so you will become rich. And if you're poor, it's probably because you're not a very good Christian. Now, there is no biblical basis for this at all. Uh, If um, you think about Jesus, who was a very good Christian, probably the best Christian, I think, the perfect Christian, he basically had no material wealth whatsoever, uh, and the rest of the New Testament's teaching uh, can't support this idea at all. So if you've heard that, I would strongly encourage you to try and park it in uh, the trash can labeled um, a massive load of garbage. Uh, Secondly, on... The other side of the money coin, which I guess is just a coin, a money coin is a coin, on the other side of the coin uh, would be um, an equally kind of unbiblical view, but this is something the church has sometimes uh, got in trouble kind of uh, giving the impression of, which is that money is actually um, really uh, should be demonized. It's a terrible thing, something to beat people with. Um, How dare you wear nice clothes, call yourself a Christian. You shouldn't have anything nice ever. You should feel guilty about any money, and you should give it away as quickly as you possibly can. Uh, Just as pernicious, just as dangerous. And then thirdly, the church has sometimes given this sort of 
unhelpful impression that following Jesus is really only about um, uh, a couple of really important things. Everything else doesn't really matter. It's only about these things, and usually one of them is our attitude or what we do with money. A friend was telling me uh, recently that her church has adopted a new set of criteria for uh, volunteer leadership positions. The only two stipulations in order to be considered for these volunteer uh, leadership positions are you can't be sleeping with someone you're not married to and you must be giving 10% of your net income to the church. Just that. Now, to be clear, I'm not saying that either of those things are bad ideas. I think they're good ideas. I'm just saying that such a narrow focus can give a very skewed understanding of what it is to follow Jesus. And it reduces the faith to these sort of moral checkboxes. Great, I've done those. Now God must be pleased and happy with me, rather than actually allowing what the guys were talking about in those uh, kind of testimonies of God invading their whole lives, of completely overflowing and uh, overcoming their beings and changing everything. So... This is the how money has been presented to us in the church context in which we find ourselves. And I want to just make it clear that none of us will be listening to this in a vacuum. And so it might be helpful just to admit that to ourselves at the outset and to ask the Spirit to meet us and to rewire any wrong thoughts any wrong beliefs in our brains about what money is, what God thinks of it, and, what we, uh, and how we should treat it. I think it's pretty fair to say that it's very easy, isn't it, to judge other people when it comes to money. In general, I think this is a huge generalization, in general, probably, if you're more right-leaning in your political ideology, you find it quite easy to judge people who haven't got a lot of money. And if you're left-leaning in your political ideology, you might find it very easy to judge people who've got lots and lots of money. And invariably, you will negatively judge both those two categories of people. What isn't so easy is to actually look at ourselves honestly and go, I wonder how I'm doing. So that's what I want to challenge us to do as we listen to this. I've given three good reasons not to want to hear about money in church, here's a less good one. Most of us don't want to hear about subjects like money because they cut to the heart of how much we're actually letting Jesus in to change our whole lives. Money is one of those key issues where the rubber really hits the road of our faith. Martin Luther, someone I kind of like, uh, said... uh, Everyone needs three conversions. A conversion of the mind, a conversion of the heart, and a conversion of the purse or the wallet. Of these three, he said, the conversion of the purse is the most difficult. And Jesus, of course, talked a lot about money, more than any other subject apart from the kingdom of God. Twelve of his 38 parables are all about money. He did so because he knows how powerful money is to us both for good and for bad. And so, at the outset of this talk, let's avoid beating ourselves with the you aren't giving enough money away stick. Let's avoid the pernicious prosperity gospel theology and park that in the garbage trash, garbage trash can, whatever. We call it a rubbish bin, 
and I'm trying to enculturate into your whole kingdom thing, and I don't know. Anyway, and also, let's reduce, let's stop reducing our whole relationship with Jesus just into, into one idea about what we do with money. Instead, let's allow Jesus' teaching to infiltrate our whole minds and bodies so that we can become free. Free when it comes to money. That's what Jesus has come for. And where his spirit is, there is freedom. And that's what he wants for you. If a person gets their attitude towards money right, said Billy Graham, it will help straighten out almost every other area of their life. One of the things I found so powerful about this weekend away that we've just been on was seeing on that Sunday morning so many people basically answer the call of, do you want to be used? It's a call that goes throughout the Bible, and it's the thing that God loves most. Because in order to answer that call, and obviously we're always a bit of a mixed bad bag, we have mixed motivations, but when we answer that call, what we're doing is we are exercising faith. And we are saying, I don't really know what the future's like. I don't know where I'm necessarily going. But what I'm doing is I'm putting my life into your hands yet again. And I'm asking you to look after me, to direct me, and to bring me to life. And God loves that faith. And as Hannah was talking and as the other guys were talking, faith begets faith, which begets faith. It all rises up. And so what I want to challenge us to do is to keep going to take what we may have experienced in San Clemente and bring it into the nitty-gritty of real life here, to give ourselves over again and again to the Jesus who loves us and cares for us and directs our steps and allow that process of putting ourselves into his hands again infiltrate all the areas of our lives, particularly how we treat money, what we believe about money, and what we do with it. Good? Good. So, this is from Matthew chapter 25. Jesus is teaching on money. This is one of his famous parables, starting at verse 14. For it will be like a man going on a journey, who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now, after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here. I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also, who had the two talents, came forward saying, Master, you delivered me two talents. Here, I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also who had received the one talent came forward, saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow 
and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid. And I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. But the master answered him, you wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to the one who has ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So this parable is um, given by Jesus at the end of Matthew's gospel, just before Jesus is arrested. It's part of what we know as the eschatological discourse. It's this little period where Jesus is teaching his disciples uh, about what is going to happen in between the time now and when he returns uh, to fulfill uh, his kingdom uh, in its entirety. And in it, he encourages his followers to do two things, really. One, be prepared and two, be responsible. And both of those themes are within this parable. The general theme is, time is short. Use what God has given you for his kingdom. Now, there are a couple of red herrings in this parable that it would be good for us uh, to kind of uh, not fixate on, but um, because doing so kind of stops us from hearing the actual main point of the parable. Uh, but so that we can kind of get them out of the way quickly, let me uh, just briefly talk about those. Firstly, the master stands for God, obviously, but we should be very wary of saying that therefore God is exactly like the depiction of the master. As Jesus' first century Jewish listeners would know, God, unlike the master, is neither a hard man, as he's described, nor does he reap where he doesn't sow, verse 24. The God of their forefathers, the one who has been revealed to Israel throughout, his hist throughout their history, has shown himself rather to be merciful, not a hard man, and just, full of justice. In fact, described as justice, so not someone who would reap where he doesn't sow. So the reason Jesus has for describing the master as such is a rhetorical one. He is exaggerating for effect. We can easily imagine a harsh master being highly expectant of his servants to do something with what they've been entrusted. Well, let me tell you, says Jesus, just because God is merciful and just, and he is merciful and just, that doesn't mean, though, that he doesn't expect us to do something with what we've been entrusted to. Second little red herring. It's a mistake to read too much into the punishment meted out to the worthless servant. The outer darkness uh, mentioned in verse 30 is a reference to the Old Testament understanding of Sheol. This is a sort of dark, gloomy place. It's kind of mysterious. Um, and sort of where you go when you aren't connected to God. Little is known about it, and it would be a mistake to take some kind of extra-biblical pictures of a fiery hell from Dante's Inferno or from wherever and then place this on the language of Jesus. This just wouldn't be in his or anyone else's, in his audience's mind. 
the Hebrew writers weren't actually that concerned with what happened when people died. Death and life to them were not what we understand at all. We think either you're dead or you're alive. For the Jewish minds, death and life were really more like two ways of being alive. If you're connected to God, you're alive, and you're alive. If you're not connected to God, you're dead, even though you're alive. And this is clearly the meaning here. The wicked, still very much alive servant, is cut off from his master. And that's the idea that Jesus is getting at. Thirdly, Jesus' warning in the passage is directed primarily at the Pharisees. He does this by specifically subverting their teaching. Rabbinic law of the time actually encouraged people to do exactly what the wicked servant had done. It was considered a wise thing in rabbinic law to bury money in the ground, and then no one could steal it, and then you would still have it. Conversely, doing what the master tells this wicked servant that he should have done, put the money in the bank to gain interest in verse 27, was actually banned by rabbinic law. So Jesus is turning common pharisaical understanding of how the world should work and what God likes on its head. But the point in doing that is not necessarily just to have a go at the Pharisees. It's to have a go at what they have put their trust in. And what they have put their trust in is their own idea of following God's law. And what Jesus is saying is, that is not going to help you because I'm here. And I am the king. And I am here to establish my kingdom. And so what I am looking for is people who put their trust in nothing other than me. Come put your trust in Jesus, the king of his kingdom. Enter into his kingdom by doing so. And then do something in his kingdom. Build his kingdom with him. This is the whole thrust of Jesus' teaching. So let us unpack the main points. The master stands for God. He gives talents to three servants who stand for people like you and me. Now, a talent is like a measure of weight. And it was so heavy, in fact, that it could only really be measured in gold. So the master is giving each uh, of his servants money. Now, there's definitely a sense in which kind of talents, i.e. giftings, thing that you're particularly good at is in play here. But really, the main idea is money. And point number one is, God, the master, has all the money in the world. He owns it. He doles it out. He has it all. The money in your bank account, the money in your wallet, the money you'd like to have, the money you wish you hadn't spent on that thing. All of it, God's. This, though, is a sticking point for us, is it not? Because we'd really like to be the master. And in fact, some of the time, we actually think we're the master because it's our money, isn't it? We earned it. I was um, reminded of some friends who went to our church in London, and um, they had a very interesting story. Uh, weren't Christians, and um, the husband actually was a, um, grew up with nothing, absolutely nothing in northwest London. Uh, and because he grew up with nothing, he left school aged 16 with no qualifications. But the whole family were driven by, we, we have to make, money was everything to them. And he opened a um, toy shop 
having never opened a toy shop before or done anything with toys, he opened a toy shop which turned out to be very successful. He had a real knack for uh, retail. And then he opened three toy shops and it kept on growing. His wife then started going to a church because she was invited by some friends and suddenly it all made sense to her. And so she tried to get her husband to come along but he was having none of it. He thought it was just um, uh, for backward people who believed in fairy stories. But one day, she managed to convince him to come to this um, men's kind of breakfast. And so he begrudgingly went along. And uh, at the back, he was there. And suddenly, as this person was talking about the real Jesus, he said, out of nowhere, no expectation, his words were, God just got me. And I knew it was true. And I started bawling my eyes out. And I said, I've got to become a Christian. He's the sort of person who is all or nothing on everything, so he was fully in. Their toy shop empire started growing hugely. He's a multimillionaire now, has hundreds of toy shops. But at some point, his wife said, I think we need to start giving money away. And this, for him, was a huge problem, because he'd started with nothing, nothing. And purely through his talent and hard work, and probably a huge amount of luck, but still, huge amount of talent, huge amount of hard work. He had built everything. And for him, the idea of giving money that was his was almost impossible until he started giving it. And he started giving it, and he realized this was so much more fun than making it. And he is now hugely, hugely generous. I'll tell a little bit more about his story in a minute. But he probably shows all of us what we're like. We think it's ours. We want to hold on to it nice and tightly. We're proof that now and again, stop clocks are right. Martin Luther was right about one or two things. The fact that the servants get different amounts is not actually of much significance. They receive according to their ability, but not according to their status. One is not more loved than the other. This is very important for us to hear. Indeed, the response to both the trustworthy servants is exactly the same. Well done, good and faithful servant. Because they are treated equally in terms of their status because they are equal in terms of their status. This is how God treats all of us, his children. We are all exactly the same. The fact that they are given more to start with and that this is because of their differing abilities, not status, is simply a stating of the obvious when it comes to the diversity of people. Everyone has different abilities. Let's just admit it. Some are better when it comes to money than others. Some receive more money over their lifetimes, some receive less. I think I've joked about this before, but I think it's a very good thing that I don't have lots and lots and lots and lots of money because I would be awful with it. I think I'd buy a panda straight away. If I, if I had a billion dollars, I'd just go and buy a panda. It would be great, and we'd have bamboo. Uh, it's a very good idea that I don't have a lot of money. Other people, very good with huge amounts of money. 
Some receive more money over their lifetimes. Some receive less. Let's not worry too much about where we are in the pecking order, shall we? The point is, it's all God's anyway. And his desire is for all of us to have a very important role in administering all that we have, which is all part of a monumentally bountiful supply. A talent in today's money is worth about a million dollars. So the master is giving his three servants talents totaling around eight million dollars. There is an abundance, is the point. This is a lot of money we're talking about. And God liberally administers his bounty to everyone, asking that we all, all of us, steward it well. So do not feel guilty if you've got lots of money, and do not feel resentful if you have less. Instead, we need to follow Paul's example of being content in both times of plenty and of scarcity. But let us all right now acknowledge that God's desire is that no one, not one person, not one little sheep of his flock, live in need. Throughout and over and over and over again, the Bible compels us, his people, to look after the poor. What will help with this process is not wasting time chasing after things that will never be ours. Because even if we accumulate all the money in the world, it will only ever offer us temporary satisfaction. Our spirits will know deep down that it is not actually ours anyway. This is why people can't stop themselves chasing after money, after money, after money, because it never actually satisfies. We always want more. The more we make, the more we need to make. Because we hope desperately that at some point this will be enough. J.D. Rockefeller, uh, who lived at the turn of the century, last century, uh, was probably, um, I think still, the most, uh, the richest person uh, who's ever lived, uh, beating Bezos, I think, uh, whoever is top right now. But um, he was asked at one point, how much money is enough? And he just said, just a little bit more. We have this unquenchable desire for something that never satisfies. Instead, Jesus says, pursue the thing that really can be yours and actually can and does satisfy, which is me and my kingdom. Now, this is not to take away the joy that comes from owning and using our money and possessions, nor the joy and meaning derived from the work which earned them, but rather it's about our attitude towards them. This is all God's. Let us continually be thankful for it over and over again, and let us hold it all with open hands as opposed to clenched fists. So, is money ruling you or are you living blissfully uncontrolled by it? Here are some symptoms of it being in charge. Anxiety about money. Not even wanting to look at that bank account for fear of what you might see there. Or unrestricted spending, hoarding, coveting, fantasizing about what might happen in the future. And I recently bought my first bit of cryptocurrency. I've basically been not 
refusing to do this because I, I hate bandwagons and I felt like it was a bandwagon. And I also thought it probably didn't have any value. And then I was talking to someone and they convinced me that, yes, it probably is the future. Uh, so anyway, I bought a little bit. And I thought, um, this will be good. Uh, I won't worry about it too much. But the problem is I've got an app on my phone which tells me within every second how much it's going up and down, which I check all the time. I checked it whilst my daughter was scoring her first ever goal at soccer. That's how terrible a parent I am. I say this to you because money's powerful. And it can quite quickly start ruling us. But it's never supposed to. And God doesn't give it to us in order for it to do that. My advice would be, if you do feel anxious, if you do feel like you're coveting, if you are fantasizing about what might be, try to give it to Jesus. Allow him into the conversation. Be filled and have the Spirit change the way you think the way you believe. All issues of the money are actually issues of our heart. And only the Spirit is the one who can change those. Point number two, the main point of the parable, what are we doing with what we've been given? The first two servants take what they have and make more with it. There is a determination and a focus to their action. There is no idol. They go at once, verse 16. The Bible is clear, idleness is not a godly uh, attribute. And the master's criticism of the third servant is, is directed in part to his slothfulness. We were made to work. There is some Christian teaching that says it's not, it doesn't really matter what you do, it's just about your identity and who you are, which is, of course is important, but the point is we're always both. We are beings and we are doings. We were created by God to be with him and to go out into the chaos and to bring order to it. That's what it is to be human. It's why, sadly, depression is so common for those who are retired or unemployed. Part of us is not living. And we as a community must look after those who are struggling to find work. Those who are struggling to have a real purpose in life. Church should be about giving purpose to everyone because that's what God is about. And the wonderful thing of the kingdom of God is that everyone has a part to play. Everyone has a purpose. You uniquely have gifts, you have calling, you have purpose that no one else has. And what we should be thinking of when we come to church is, how can I be used? How can God use me for his kingdom? It will change your life. It will change the life of people around you. So work is a godly thing. But we cannot work for God's love, and working for the praise of men will always leave us empty. Work, in fact, not based in unmerited love and the grace of Jesus, is not good for us. Now, in general, I feel, and I think I can say this as an outsider, I think there's a little bit too much of this graceless work in this culture. You guys work a lot. Just have a break. Enjoy, like, enjoy life for a bit. Don't work so hard. Stop it. Good. Seven nations in the world, higher productivity than America. 
all of which have shorter working weeks. Back to money. The first two make more money and the master is pleased. Not, though, because of the result. Well done, the master says. Sorry, not just because of the result. Well done, he says. But also because of the method. Good, he says. And this is important. There are lots of ways to make money, but not all of them are good. And because purely making money is not the end in and of itself, the process by which we engage in it is of great importance in and of itself. So avoid any temptation of get-rich-quick schemes, cryptocurrencies or lottery or anything like that. That was a joke. By contrast, use your gifts. Use your talents and drives to earn a living instead, which is ultimately the problem with the third servant. Maybe because he's overburdened by the large amount of money, maybe because he's scared of the master, maybe because he's just wicked and lazy. The third servant does nothing with what he's been given. This is a mistake. What have you got? Don't worry if it's not the same as other people or it's not very impressive in your eyes. It's impressive in God's eyes. What have you got and what are you doing with it? Because there's a godly expectation both on the part of the master and the first servants that what we are given will actually be increased. Why? Because both master and servant know that healthy things grow. You cannot stop them. It's a principle of the kingdom of God. My eldest daughter, Evie, is 12. She looks like she's 19. She's five foot nine. I don't know how this happened. It just suddenly happened. But she is a testament to you. Healthy things grow. You can't stop them. So that guy, Gary Grant, who set up these toy shops in the UK, I think he's got something like um, 120 stores in the UK. He's got franchises all over the country. He's out um, lasted Woolworths, which was our version of Sears. Toys R Us, which is your version of Toys R Us. He's outlasted them all. But what he's said is the most important thing is the culture that they've instilled in their companies. It's not about God giving him more money. It's about God rewarding his generosity with more generosity. So in his company, he refuses to let anyone work on Sundays. They all just get paid and don't go to work on Sundays. They, give, they have a line in their budget of 10%, which is just donations. He owns the whole company, so he can do whatever he likes. Um, but also, they've done this thing for all of their employees that any charity they choose to give out of their paycheck the company will match dollar for dollar. No questions asked. Any company that they like. 45% of their workers, which is higher than any other company in the UK, do this. Because generosity begets generosity in the same way that faith begets faith. What God wants to do is just expand the whole thing. When you've received something unconditional, does it make you happy? Does it make you think, I'd quite like to do that as well? 
I certainly experience that. Just think, I want to do nice things. Finally, point three. Using it well necessarily means giving it back. The servants give it all back to the master. For two reasons. Firstly, they know whose it is anyway. And they are, as he commends them, trustworthy and faithful. What God is looking for is people who are up for building his kingdom. Nothing else. What God is looking for is people who invest and reinvest themselves, their time, their abilities, and of course, their money in the one thing that has eternal meaning. And by eternal meaning, I mean meaning right here, right now in the kingdom of God. Eternal life throughout the New Testament is just a synonym for the kingdom of God. What he's looking for is people who want to build the kingdom here because they know it's going to be the future forever. His promise is that the more we prove faithful in doing that, the more he will entrust us. Now, it doesn't mean that we give in order to get. God is not some, like, celestial slot machine. It's not how he works. The servant's reward is not greater wealth. It's greater responsibility. They remain the master's servants. He does not become their sugar daddy. Instead, their reward is one of greater value than money or possessions. It is to enter into the joy of the master, verse 21 and verse 23. It's to share in the heavenly experience of the kingdom of joy and peace and fulfillment and satisfaction and fullness here and now in some measure and in the future without restriction. It's why some people who have no money are so happy, are so at peace, and some people who have all the money are anxious and worried. Because what is of eternal, uncompromised value is entering into the master's rest, being with him and his kingdom. So to end, how we sh- should we use our money? Uh, John Wesley summed up biblical teaching like this. Make all the money you can, save all the money you can, give all the money you can. Uh, making all the money you can, we've kind of covered. Save all the money you can. Biblical saving is not hoarding up Scrooge-like money and treasure for ourselves on earth. It's not about giving ourselves a sense of security. Money cannot bring a sense of security. Only God can. And it's not about miserliness. Rather, it's an antidote to the Western pressure to live beyond our means. It's a sign of financial responsibility. It's a resistance to becoming a financial burden on other people. And it's a way of being able to give to God's kingdom in the future. Thirdly, give all you can in two ways. Firstly, do it freely and without caution, just like God does. God gives that which is of infinite value, his actual self, to us. Just consider yourself for a second. When it comes to you and perfect God, how good a bet would you say you are? Are you going to, for instance, live up to his perfect standards? I'll tell you, no. You are not a good bet. In fact, you are the worst bet in the whole of history. 
You are destined to not be perfect. You are destined to fail. Now, of course, we'll do some amazing things, but in general, we will not be perfect. And yet, God knows exactly that, that we are the worst bet in history, and yet he bets everything, his whole self, on us. Such is his grace and abounding love for us. Such is his goodness and abundance. We should be the most generous free people in the whole universe because of what we've received. We should be scrambling past people to get to the front of the bar so that we can pay for everyone's drinks. We should be people who give money to people who do not deserve it, just because we can, and not wanting them to know, it's because I'm a Christian, not even telling them, just giving it. Because we know so much of the generosity of our Father in heaven. And we care so little for what value the world places on money. Splash the cash. It will do you the world of good. It's one way in which you rob money of all its power. It's just giving it away. Secondly, Give prudently, knowledgeably, and regularly. This is not a contradiction to that previous point. Research and back winners. Do everything you can to make sure the things you want to support or you are already supporting will thrive. Use your gifts and talents to make things work. Investing in kingdom things in such a way as to give them the best chance of a kingdom return is the best way in which we can use our time and our money. So, to end, hopefully, it goes without saying that you should not be giving all of the money that you give to the church. However, there is a sort of cognitive dissonance between being part of a church and not being fully part of it, i.e. not being invested financially in it. To be part of it, all of you needs to be coming through the door every time you walk here on a Sunday. Now, there are no rules about how much money to give. The Old Testament covenantal principle of a tithe, a 10% of your income, is post-Jesus now completely redundant. Jesus has fulfilled the law. The law has done its purpose. It's now finished. However, it's worth remembering that in Jesus' ethical teaching, what he tends to do is go beyond the law. So not just no murder, but no hatred. Not just, you know, no adultery, but no lust. So 10%. You've done some math. So can I challenge you and ask you to invest in this church so that we can grow the kingdom of God together? It will be good for you. It will be good for the world. Um, Alton, if we could have the slides up. So what we're looking for as an end-of-year target is $100,000. Nice round number. Uh, it's approximately um, just over a quarter of our annual budget. 
which is tend to, tends to be how, it, how it's worked. Every single year we've been here, we've asked for uh, 100,000 at the end of the year, even when we were like 20 people in the living room. We asked for this. Every year we've got it or we've got more. So thank you everyone who has um, invested in this church. We're looking for 100 and we're gonna uh, keep you updated from now till the end of the year. This is one way in which it could break down. I haven't put this one up. But if everyone who's here and everyone who comes next week gives probably slightly less than $1,000, we'll do it. It's just done, straight away. But I know that some people, that will be too much, and some people, they could give more. So here's another way of doing it. This only takes 24 people. Are you someone who could give $500? Are you someone who could give what I want to challenge us though is to have as many people participating as possible if you see yourself as part of the church just give something because then we can go way over the hundred and we can do much more exciting things so that's what we're looking for I wonder if we could just pray together. In a moment, we're going to sing a song and uh, we'll take a collection. But would you um, be brave and ask the Spirit to speak to you? Tell him your fears and your worries. Thank him for everything that he's given you. Lord Jesus, we invite your presence into our lives, into the whole of our lives, where we're worried about money, where we don't necessarily know how we'll make ends meet. We ask that you would look after us, that you would still our fears, and we acknowledge just how much you've given us, and we ask that you would help us use what you've given us well, that we would be people of extraordinary generosity, that we would bless our world in the same way that you have blessed us. In Jesus' name, amen. I was um, reading uh, a book about a pastor up in Missouri, I think it is, and uh, he was saying um, he'd had this church that was basically, he'd been brought up in a kind of fire and brimstone world. And he had perfected the art of preaching fire and brimstone. And he said it was amazing, hugely successful. It's, a, it's incredible how motivated people can be by guilt. 
then he um, started reading the New Testament with fresh eyes. And he realized that Jesus never motivates anyone by guilt. In fact, Jesus can't stand to do that. And he started realizing that what he was preaching was not actually the gospel of Jesus of Nazareth. I say that because no one should ever be motivated by guilt in God's kingdom. Be motivated by the conviction of the Spirit and that alone. Trust in him that he is good, that he's nice and he likes you, and that he will look after you. Good? Good. So, that's the first way in which we um, people can give. The second way is um, monthly giving. Um, it's a both-and type of thing. But if you could set up monthly giving, that would be hugely helpful for us. It just helps with our planning. It does not matter how much. It could be $10 a month. That's absolutely fine. Give what you can, but it just helps you know that I am invested in this. It helps us with our planning. You can do both those things, one-off gifts and uh, monthly giving at bread.church slash, slash, slash donate. Um, let's sing a song, and let's ask God just to show us what he wants us to do. Should we stand?